Welcome to a Tuesday edition of Locked On Warriors. I'm Wes Goldberg, Warriors beat writer for the Mercury News. Make sure to follow Locked On Warriors on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get podcasts for episodes every day, Monday through Friday. I'm joined on today's episode by Warriors president and CEO Rick Welts, who will be stepping down from his role at the end of the season. Welts joined me to talk about the future of the Warriors as a business, his thoughts on Steph Curry, and then share stories from a long and decorated career as an NBA executive, including helping create and market the Dream Team and NBA All-Star Weekend as we know it. Welts is one of those guys who you always come away impressed by and seems to be thinking 10 years down the road all the time. So I think you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Today's episode is brought to you by Rock Auto. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. Visit rockauto.com and tell them Locked On sent you. You are Locked On Warriors. Your daily Golden State Warriors podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team, every day. So, the last time you and I spoke, actually, it was last year. I spoke to you on a, about a story I was working on about the 10-year uh, anniversary of Joe and Peter buying the team. And obviously, it, it, this is, you know, the 10th year of you being in this president role um, and you'll be stepping down at the end of the year. I just wonder if we're, is the reason for your stepping down just because it was a nice round number of, of 10 years or was there, or what was kind of the, uh, the reasoning there for you? Uh, nothing uh, that well thought out, Wes. Uh, no, I, this is, we had, uh, we sat down a couple of years ago and talked about like, my desire that uh, at, at the right point in time, I wanted to step away, uh, feeling like we we had a really great line of sight toward our business getting back to normal. And that that obviously couldn't have happened a year ago. I, I describe it as we were, uh, like most teams, like all teams, we were in the woods in the dark without a compass or a flashlight and didn't know how we were going to get out. And so where we are right now, um, you know, with fans back in the building, the last two games with with an increasing number of people coming with clear line of sight, I think, toward full buildings next fall uh, and our business uh, being back to where we want it to be, welcoming audiences in the Chase Center. Just it just it just feels like the right time and place for me. <laughs> So it, it, it really, it's my 46th NBA season. So I think I deserve a little break. Um, and so, <laughs> and the organization, you know, what's the most important thing? The organization is just in terrific shape. Uh, I'm not, the Warriors for sure, our, our young leadership team, incredible. Uh, we saw, you know, seeds sprout at Chase Center uh, a year and a half ago now. <laughs> Uh, I can envision that coming to full bloom over the course of the next year. We're on track for that. And I think the league, the league has never, I think, been in better shape in terms of opportunity and leadership. And, you know, that's, uh, that feels good. That, that makes it for me feel like uh, the right time to go when things are all pointed in the right direction. I, I'm mm-hmm. looking forward to a real long run of success here for the Warriors, but for the NBA as well. And I know you'll still be in an advisory role with the team and things like that. But when it came to the search for the new president, um, what specifically was it that you guys were looking for? And then what was it that Brandon Schneider had um, that made you guys feel comfortable and go in that direction? Well, um, 
I got to advise on the front end and uh, Joe and Peter got to do the interviews and make the decisions. So I, I wasn't in the room uh, for the interviews. Uh, what I think we easily agreed upon before that is we had internal candidates that uh, can do this job. Uh, and, and so we were thrilled that we didn't have to go outside to, to look for somebody to come in to run uh, the Warriors as president. So I think it was, uh, you know, uh, an embarrassment of riches at some level because we do have uh, extremely experienced and talented staff. But at the end of the day, it's really I think for Joe and Peter to comment. But you know, we're, uh, you know, I will say from from my standpoint, I think Brandon's, uh, you know, well prepared and cut out for the position just based on the fact he's touched every aspect of this operation for nearly 20 years that he's been here and had tremendous success. A lot of the success that we've had is his work, uh, maybe a little less visibly behind the scenes and strategy and planning to get us uh, to the position that we are today. So I, I think without doubt, uh, he's he's perfect for the role and, and is gonna do a terrific job. But it was great that we knew we had inside uh, uh, senior leaders who who could take on that role and you know I, I would leave it to to joe and peter to say what what they felt you know put brandon over the top but he's he's qualified in every possible way it feels like a lot of what you guys have built with the warriors over the last decade there's a culture there's a way of doing things and i would imagine that is helpful in promoting somebody internal too is because they don't need to know they, they are part of that right and he's been around for so long that that i imagine that that was part of what you guys were looking for sure i, I think that's a big part of it we you know where we started for me 10 years ago to where we are now culturally is a completely different organization you know we had an organization that came to work expect expecting to lose uh every season right. not expecting to win and obviously we've been able to completely change the dynamics in the organization and had a really amazing basketball team to to spur that um so yes to be able to maintain that but i will say that i think the challenges are going to be very different I, you know this is not going to be doing the job that i had for the last 10 years the challenges are going to be really different going forward um you know we have to figure out uh long term what our live game media distribution strategy is right we're watching the regional we're watching the networks with declining audiences and more challenging business models. And it's, you know, it's impossible for me to imagine that 10 years from now, we're gonna be, have our games distributed the same way that they are right now. That's not gonna happen. We have great long-term agreements in place, but it's the time is now to start to plan for, you know, how we're going to have our live games distributed in the future. So we have to start thinking about that. We have to start thinking about where sports betting fits into our world. Uh, California will, without a doubt lag what's going on in the rest of the country, but you see other parts of the country, you see in Arizona where the, you know, the Phoenix Suns are gonna be building a, a sports betting uh, facility as part of their arena. So imagine, mm -hmm. you know, that's, that's not happening in California anytime soon. Sports betting is going to be a huge factor in sports going forward. We have to figure that out. All kinds of new technology opportunities. And I, and I think we're not, you know, you know, Joe and Peter, we're not going to settle for uh, owning an NBA team, a G League team, an arena, uh, some esports teams. 
uh, it's kind of where from here, how do we, how do we use this, the infrastructure that we've created and the talent that we have in house to explore opportunities where our experience adds strength to an opportunity and, and creates more opportunity. So there's there, it's the, the Warriors 10 years from now are gonna look much like the Warriors do today. So the job isn't the same job. It's, it's gonna have a whole different set of challenges, all the same ones, but a whole different set of challenges as well. Yeah, and a lot. Of, I know a lot of what we're talking about is sort of the digital part with the streaming and the sports betting and everything that's, but I think part of, and from an outsider looking in, having that, the the ground that Chase Center is built on, like if you guys wanted to buy, build a sports book, you could probably build a sports book. You just have, for, in terms of having the space, uh, see, so there's a lot of options there, right? As far as kind of pivoting and, and going into the whatever's next. But you mentioned- and We already, we already yeah. have, remember, we already have a fully entitled hotel on the site right. as well that we pushed pause on at the beginning of the pandemic. So at some point, you know, we're going to push go on that as well. And we'll have a, a hotel on the site as well. What do you think is next on a to-do list um, coming out of the pandemic for Chase Center or the area around Chase Center? Because I know you did have to hit a pause on a lot of things. You finally got dumpling time open. And then, <laughs> but like after that, What's next, do you think? No, it it uh, it really was unbelievable that we were closed for more days than we were open, right? And uh, what's happened to San Francisco's restaurant industry, not unlike the rest of the countries, it's obviously been devastating. So we're, we feel like we're, we're, we can see the other side of that now. We've had real great interest on a lot of the retail around. I think it's gonna be some really terrific retail appearing over the course of the next year, more restaurants. Um, and I and I think the thing you're going to see most is the idea of activating Thrive City and Chase Center 365 days a year. That was always the vision, and we were just starting to scratch the surface on what that means. And you know, we have two office towers that that are operated by Uber right now, which are not currently occupied, but but will be, which will add a huge number of people to the daily population there and change the dynamics of, of Thrive City and Chase Center every single day. Just the amount of sheer activity that you're going to see there over the course of the next year is going to kind of bring the original vision to, to life in a way that we never got to see pre-pandemic. And then before you mentioned that, obviously, the amazing basketball team and everything that the winning and everything that's been built there. Steph had another 30 point game last night. It's 13 of the last 14, I believe now. What is the closest comparison? Cause you've been around the league for so long and you've seen all the greats. When you talk about greats, you've seen them, right? Um, closest comparison to what Steph is doing right now that you can think of. Gosh, I, you know, the, the, he's so unique in the way he plays in the game from his position. I, I don't, I don't know that we've ever seen anybody play his position like this. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, you know, from my experience, the only, oh my God, I can't believe he just did that would probably be Michael Jordan, right? Yeah. Like over and over and over again, you would, Michael could do things that you just couldn't believe he could do in the most pressure filled moments of a game. And you just would shake your head and go, I can't believe he could do that. But it would, you know, he played a completely different game than, than Steph plays. So, it's, so I'm not right. sure. So it's a fair comparison, I think, in terms of wow factor. It's it, Their games are obviously so different. I don't think it's a fair comparison there. And when did you know, again, you've seen Magic, you've seen Bird, you saw MJ, you saw the generational players. Um, Wes, I hate to tell that? you, I, saw, I actually saw Bill Russell and Will Chamberlain, too, play. Okay. I wasn't going to bring that up. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was trying to keep it eighties and after, but uh, you've seen him, right? And and uh, when did you know that Steph? I mean, you got into your position a couple years in the Steph's career there. He was not what he was, obviously, then that he is now. When did you know that he could be one of these generational type stars where, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, people will be talking about Steph the way that we're talking about MJ and Bird and those guys. You know, I think what's amazing about him is just the incremental improvement. It's not like he had a great off season one year and came back as Steph Curry, right? It's just every right. year there seems to have been this incremental. I don't, I don't, maybe for me, it was, you'll have to look up the date, his kind of breakout game at Madison Square Garden, where I think mm -hmm. he got, where I think he got the attention of the world for the first time. He, he been more of a interesting curiosity, but I somehow, I think maybe that game symbolized him kind of exploding on, on a national scene in a way that he hadn't up until that point, which, you know, I guess that's something from Madison Square Garden playing there and, and what New York City means to the game of basketball. But I I, maybe if I had to pick a moment, that'd probably be it. Yeah. I know for me, it was the 2014 playoffs against the Clippers. And I think you, you lost that series in seven. And I was still on the East Coast at that time. So I was staying up until 1 a.m. to watch those games. And that was when I was like, oh, this guy is different. I'll be right back with Rick Welts, but first, let's talk about Indeed. You're the hiring expert for your company, and what you really need is help making your shortlist of quality candidates. You need a hiring partner who helps make your life easier. You need Indeed. Indeed is the job site that makes hiring as easy as one, two, three. Post, screen, and interview all on Indeed. Get your quality shortlist of candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job description faster, only pay for the candidates that meet must-have qualifications, and schedule and complete video interviews all in your Indeed dashboard. Indeed makes connecting with and hiring the right talent fast and easy with tools like Indeed Instant Match, giving you quality candidates whose resume on Indeed fits your job description immediately, and Indeed skills tests that on average reduces hiring time by 27%. You can choose from more than 130 skill tests, then add your must-have requirements so that you only pay for applications that meet them. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. If you're hiring, you need Indeed. Get started right now with a free $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your post at Indeed.com slash locked. Get a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash locked. Indeed.com slash locked. Offer valid through June 30th. Terms and conditions apply. Support for the show also comes from Built Bar. Built Bar is a protein bar that tastes like a candy bar, but unlike most protein bars, it actually tastes good and it's good for you. Built Bar is great for health-conscious men and women, whether you want to maintain or lose weight while indulging in a delicious treat. Built Bars are low-calorie, low-sugar, high-protein, high-fiber, great if you're on the keto or other low-carb diets, and they have nine different flavors available now. And just brought back Coconut Brownie Chunk for a limited time, and they're always creating and releasing new, exciting flavors. Built Bar has been with us for a long time. I've been eating Built Bars for a long time, usually in the late afternoon between lunch and dinner. It's a good way to give me that boost I need to finish up work. And like I said, Built Bar has been friends of the show for almost a year now, and we appreciate the partnership that we've built. So support the show by supporting those who support us. Go to BuiltBar.com and use the promo code LOCKED15, and you'll get 15% off your next order. Again, use promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. One of the things we've noticed this year with Steph is he does seem a lot more vocal, at least talking with media, uh, a lot more transparent, maybe transparent is not the right word, but just more willing to go along on the answers and willing to just sort of say what he feels and, and all these things. And it, it feels like maybe there's a little bit more, he's been, Steve has talked about how he's been more vocal 
you know, in practices and stuff like that. Have you, what, what's your relationship been with staff over the last few years? And, and especially recently, as far as basketball decisions and things like that, how much is he weighing in and how much were you guys consulting him? Cause I would imagine there had to be a fair bit of that. Yeah. I, I that's a much better question for Bob Myers because that's Bob's job yeah. to talk to stuff about that, not mine. So I will say we had him on a, an event, uh, last week that, that I was moderating with Joe Lacob and, and with him and, and somebody asked him that question about his leadership and, and he, yeah. he kind of echoed what you said, like his leadership has evolved over time. He's still, yeah. as you said, is a guy who leads by example, but certainly this year more than other years has been more vocally engaged, you know, in a leadership role with the team they had been before. So he said pretty much exactly what you said, but I, I, that's that's really Bob's job. That's not you know he, I get I get to see him in forums like that, not not uh, hanging out in the locker room with him. I, I guess I, I maybe I asked the question the wrong way. Not necessarily as far as the locker room and the basketball. I just more want to know what your experience was with dealing with him because I know he is so involved in the organization and in the community and things like that. And and with your job, you were touching everything, and it just felt like Steph. Obviously, he's, he's the leader and, the, and a player, first and foremost, but it did feel like over the last few years, he's touched a lot of other parts of the organization. He's touched every part of WNC, yeah. right? I think that, yeah. that to have uh, a player of his caliber and maybe even more so a person of his caliber to be the face of your franchise is, uh, is a blessing, you know, that, that, that no one ever gets to have. I, I, you know, my, my joke to, with Joe Lakeham and Peter Goober is like, if I'm advising somebody on how to, you know, they look at the Warriors' success, like, how do you do that? Like, how do you create a success that the Warriors have? And, and my advice is always that you should buy a franchise that already has Steph Curry on the roster. Because your, <laughs> chances, your chances for, uh, for, for being successful have been greatly enhanced. Yeah. Um, I want to shift gears again and kind of go into story time a little bit because you have had such a decorated career and it's crazy when you go through the, even just like the Warriors media page for your biography and everything, you see all the things that you've seen and done. Um, The big one I think is the dream team and the campaign around that and then the all-star game. But I want to start with the dream team and that summer. And when you're sitting around Maybe you have a glass of wine with some friends or something like that. What is it that you talk about, the stories of anything from from that kind of era, that summer? Uh, you know, it was such a pivotal point, I think, in the history of the game of basketball. Because we had, as you know, your readers probably don't remember that there was quite a lead up to that because the, the NBA was not part of the, the infrastructure of world basketball which is run internationally by FIBA. And at the time was run by an organization called ABA USA, Amateur Basketball Association, United States of America. And we, we weren't members. We were not a part of the infrastructure that fielded teams to the Olympics. So we in effect had to prove our worth and that we would be valuable and trusted partners to the international basketball world that controlled competition in the Olympics. We, we couldn't just raise our hands and say, hey, we wanna to go to the Olympics. It didn't work that way. And frankly, there was a lot of opposition to it as well uh, because you know there was a pretty entrenched infrastructure in the United States that fielded uh, teams that went to the Olympics and this was a sea change for you know what it would be and actually the impetus started at the international level the Secretary General of FIBA was a guy by the name of Boris Dankovich um, and we had to 
extend a, a Olive Branch to FIBA to really say we would we would like to support the game of basketball, and do it. You know, we'd let yes, we would love to have our players compete in international competitions. Our American players, remember, foreign our our international players could always compete in the Olympics. Go back and play for mm -hmm. their team. It was only American NBA players that, that were not allowed to play in the Olympics. Um, and so, you know, we over the course of four or five years did a lot of things to kind of prove we could be trusted partners. The the first thing we did was a little tournament. Uh, in, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, that international capital. When you think of international basketball, you think of Milwaukee. But we brought, we did the, we we created something we called the McDonald's Open, and we brought the national team from the Soviet Union, the old Soviet Union, uh, a club team from Milan uh, that happened to have a point guard or a shooting guard by the name of Mike D'Antoni playing for them. Uh, and the Milwaukee Bucks and went to the Mecca, the building of the Mecca, uh, and invited Stankovic to fly uh, uh, from his home in, in Yugoslavia to to come to see this McDonald's Open. It was it was amazing. You know, we're hearing the old Soviet national anthem being played in in Milwaukee, and we have this tournament, and it's amazing. And and uh, you know, after that, the next year we took the Boston Celtics uh, to go play that event, the McDonald's Open in in Madrid, and play Real Madrid team there and you know same thing all over again the international scene was incredible you know Larry Bird hoist, hoisting the trophy you know in in the arena in Barcelona in front of the prince and you know it, it was really cool but over time and you know coaching clinics and other things that we would do I think we proved to FIBA that we could be trusted partners but that only went that only got us halfway there because the U.S leadership had to feel that way too. And there are a couple of key individuals who have since passed away, uh, Dave Gavitt, um, CM Newton, who were the big executives that, uh, or the, the, you know, big influences on USA basketball or on ABA USA. And same thing, convinced them over time by being supportive in every way that we possibly could, we could be good partners. So that resulted in, uh, ABA USA becoming becoming USA Basketball and agreeing that NBA players could participate in the Olympics. So the, the hard work that really got done there, the people who will never get thanked, the person who will never get thanked enough is our, was our deputy commissioner, Stern's deputy commissioner, Russ Granick, who played the role of Henry Kissinger between all the international, you know, powers that be in, in FIBA to try to orchestrate this path to get us uh, to international competition. But once we got there, it was like, holy cow, like, how do we do this, right? And mm -hmm. when it became clear that, uh, you'll also remember one crazy thing from that 1992 year, well, 1990. We hadn't qualified for the Olympics in 1992. The U.S., because we weren't very good in, we had to actually qualify for the Olympics the year after we'd chosen the dream team and we had to actually buy a tournament that was supposed to have been played in South America and brought it to Portland, Oregon, called it the Tournament of the Americas and, you know, assembled uh, all these teams that were going to compete for the last, you'd have to check me, two spots, I think, in the Olympics uh, that we could fill, or maybe it was just the winner, maybe we had to win to go. Um, and, but we knew, I, like, in terms of when you really knew you had something special, I think it was in, in the first two or three games that we that took place in Portland, uh, the visiting team would come out with cameras 
and all want to get photos or we didn't call them selfies then, but the equivalent of a selfie uh, with Charles Barkley or Michael Jordan or Magic Johnson or Patrick Ewing or you know whoever whoever their favorite dream teamer was. So that was that was kind of an unusual thing to see mm-hmm. in a basketball competition. Uh, but it it was it started to build through that, and obviously we won that tournament and qualified. But the kind of the fascination of the corporate world was really important, and that was part big part of my job was to to put together a marketing program that would uh, that would celebrate this dream team in Barcelona. And remember, you know where Dream Team came from? I don't know if you know where Dream Team. I don't. But it was. Uh, was not our making, uh, USA Basketball or the NBA. We had uh, Brian McIntyre, who was the Raymond Ritter of the NBA at the time, uh, stage a secret photo shoot at All-Star where, you know, Ewing, Bird, Isaiah, Magic, Michael, and Barkley uh, posed in their USA uniforms. And the, and the headline was, look out America, or look out world, this could be America's dream team. Mm. And some obscure copywriter at Sports Illustrated coined that, and it never left from that day forward. Uh, Dream Team became what wow. was associated with that group of athletes. And you could feel it in every meeting we had and every time we talked about it, kind of the excitement building. You, you may also remember that it was controversial in the United States. Only, only could be controversial in the United States that we would send our best athletes to the Olympics. We don't seem to have the same obstacle in swimming or track and field or anything like that we kind of of course we send our best best athletes but there's this kind of american sense of fair play mm-hmm. it's just different than anywhere else in the world so there was actually you know it wasn't unanimously embraced in the united states that this was like a great thing to do it was like not fair you know to send huh. NBA players to the olympics uh, the rest of the world was completely different and that's what unfolded in barcelona and I'd say all the time that that two weeks in Barcelona moved basketball and the NBA's agenda ahead to, to 20 years, right? In those two weeks, um, kids from all over the world were fixated on this team who then grew up to play basketball players, some of whom have played in our league. Uh, but it was that team that captured the world's imagination and, and the imagination of everybody in Barcelona. It was you know, whatever the descriptions you've heard of being in Barcelona with that team, it, it was that and then some, right? It was, yeah. it was, it was the Beatles, right? It was everywhere they went, the hotel, 24 hours a day, surrounded by crowds. You know, Charles Barkley, you know, going out at night, walking La Ramblas with, you know, hundreds of people following him just because he's Charles. Uh, <laughs> and, and everywhere they went, everything that happened was was just bigger than life and bigger than I think the Olympics has ever and has has ever seen since, right? I don't I don't know that there's anything or ever will be anything that quite matches what that group of athletes assembled on a single team. I don't know that you'll ever have a team that that will match their talent and their charisma and their ability to influence people and move them toward the game of basketball. I mean, it's just, you can trace almost everything I think the NBA has done since back to back to Barcelona and say that that was the, the spark that really ignited the, uh, the growth of, of basketball in the NBA around the world. 
Let's talk about Bet Online. Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all of your sports action. The NBA is making the playoff push, and the NHL season and Major League Baseball are in full swing. Bet Online even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV, real time updated odds and props on almost everything you can imagine. Bet Online has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit when you use the promo code Locked On. Again, head to the website, betonline.ag, or use your mobile device to sign up today, and you'll receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit, but only when you use that promo code Locked On. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. I'm curious for your opinion on this. Uh, Draymond, by the way, said the other day, I'm sure you heard this, where he does want to play in these Olympics if they do happen. Um, coming out of this pandemic and everything like that, and how important the Olympics have been and can be, how important do you think these specific Olympics would be for not just American sports, but for the world, if, if we can if we can make it happen? I, I leave it to you. That, that's your job. You're, you're <laughs> supposed to speculate on that. I, I mean, I think I been to Japan every year except this year for the last three or four years and I know you know the preparations they were ready to play the games a year before the games were supposed to be played right and you know the the level of expectation and and what that was going to mean for Japan was palpable just being in the city and seeing everything that they were doing so you know certainly you know so I'm kind of a Japanese informed opinion about it but I you know I think it would be really important just the way having fans back in in Chase Center the last two games is really important for people to feel that sense of normalcy and feel like they can see a time when we're back interacting with each other the way human beings are supposed to interact with each other and I think it would it would be you know I don't think the future of the world depends upon it but I think it would be a really positive thing if those games came came off in a way that people felt like wow, that's one more giant step back to the world that we knew pre-pandemic. Yeah. And then, and I know you were also, you know, uh, at the forefront of the creation of the All-Star Weekend. And um, curious, you know, it, it feels like, and maybe it's just because more I'm more of an NBA fan than any other sport, but it does feel like the NBA All-Star Weekend is sort of the one that gets the most attention and is the most entertaining. You know, the NFL Pro Bowl is kind of after the year. Nobody really watches it. Uh, Major League Baseball, I guess people care about that one. I, but, uh, you know, it seems to be more like a home run derby thing and then everything else is sort of superfluous. But um, what, what was so important? What was maybe the top priority in creating an NBA All-Star Weekend? Well, for me, it was to keep my job. Okay. <laughs> okay. <So> I was, <laughs> I was, you have to remember, all the leagues just got together and played the game. That's all any league did for All-Star at that at that point in time and we were the the timing is what was really critical here we were going to uh, Denver for the 1984 all-star game and what had happened is David Stern had been elected commissioner uh, by the owners that fall but he was not going to take office until the day after the all-star game in Denver so it was the you know, it was the passing of the torch from our commissioner Larry O'Brien to David Stern so it was O'Brien's last weekend David David became commissioner uh, the day after All-Star in Denver. And because it was Denver, which had a great ABA heritage, um, it's so funny. Like, I can't even, when you see it now, you know, you can, as you can imagine, it's years of planning and effort that go into this kind of worldwide spectacle at Mm All-Star. 
then we had one hotel um, housed everybody, media players, team staff, everybody. Um, we would fly in on Saturday. We'd have a, a banquet on a Saturday night with usually a really bad comedian. You play the game. You play the game on Sunday, and then everybody goes home. Um, but some things were kicking around in my mind. Stern Stern has already started to set his agenda on on what he wanted the NBA to be like under his leadership. And um, you know, he had already said like one of the things he felt the NBA had, had fallen terribly short on was embracing our history. Like we didn't have a we, we didn't have a video record of our game, a film record of our game. We, we didn't, we had no relationship with players who had played in the league before. Uh, and he just felt like as, as, as the caretakers for the sport, we really had missed the opportunity. Um, and that under his leadership, we were gonna embrace our history and embrace the people who made the game in a way that, that hadn't been done before by the NBA. And, there was a guy named Carl Shearer, who also recently passed away, who was the president of the Denver Nuggets at the time. And, and as you know, the, the Nuggets were a very proud ABA franchise before they were one of the teams that, that joined the NBA uh, when the ABA went away. And Carl uh, was there in 1976 when the ABA slam dunk contest took place, which I still have a... a, a I think it's a VCR tape. I need to get transferred to something better to keep. But it, if you go to Denver uh, and start to talk about the 1976 ABA All-Star Game, it's one of those events in the world where I'm sure I've talked to 100,000 people who are in that, you know, 15,000 seat McNichols Arena <laughs> for the 1976 ABA All-Star Game because it was such a watershed moment for a young league where, where it burst on the scene with this guy, young player Julius Irving, you know, picking up the basketball from one end of the court, walking to the far end, flying down the court and, and taking off from the free throw line and dunking the basketball to win the ABA slam dunk contest against some really great competitors. And so Carl, you know, I, I mentioned how many years it takes to play an all-star. This was gonna happen in February of 84, like in November of 83, like Carl came to New York to sit down and says, you know, we probably should start planning all-star right? But two months away, like that's, we should start to think about what we're going to do. And his pitch to me was let's, let's, uh, we're, we have such a great ABA heritage. Let's do a slam dunk contest at halftime. It's like, God, Carl, like CBS has got other programming. They do the halftime. I don't really know how we would do that, but let's think about that. And then a couple of days later, I had, uh, I was home in my little apartment in Manhattan and I was watching, I turned on a baseball old timers game from Washington, DC. There were all these 60 year old guys out there, you know, who, who used to be great names trying to play baseball. Um, it looked pretty good. Some guy hit a home run sign over the Cracker Jack sign in left field. And crack, it was called the Cracker Jack Old Timers game. And a light went off for me. And so I came in the next day to the office to Stern and said, okay, so what if we did like a second day of events and we could do we could do an old timers game. We could invite all these guys that you've been talking about to come back and, and be a part of All-Star Weekend and, and, and have an old timers game. We can all celebrate our history. And then we could, we could do a slam dunk contest that, that would kind of focus on the younger players in our league. And he, he liked it. Um, so he dragged me in to talk to Commissioner O'Brien uh, 
did not go well at all. <laughs> so I, I thought that was the end of that idea. And I don't know really what Stern did between then and maybe a week later, he walked into my office and said, okay, here's the deal. Commissioner says you can do it. Um, two conditions, one, um, you don't embarrass him on his last weekend in office. And second, it doesn't cost the MB a nickel. So with that, you know, go get them. Uh, it was my job to go out and figure out how to do that. So I had to find some people to pay for it, right? I had to, um, Gillette, I, I was the guy at the NBA at that point, my first job, who went out and talked to co companies about investing marketing dollars in the NBA. We'd never had anybody who did that before. There were 35 people in the league office. Um, we'd never had a business operation before. That's what CERN was there to start before he became commissioner. Um, so I went out and I found, uh, there was a little sports drink company called Gatorade in Indianapolis, very corporate ownership change since then, a much bigger brand, obviously. And Gatorade agreed to, to fund like paying for a slam dunk contest. And then I got, Gillette wouldn't talk to me. So I got this, I got Schick to talk to me about being one of the sponsors of the old timers game. And then I got American Airlines. I don't think they paid us a nickel, but they paid all the airfare, air transportation for everybody we needed to get there for the events that day. Um, we sold tickets for five bucks. Um, we sold out McNichols Arena and, you know, we talked this upstart television network called the Entertainment and Sports Programming Network, which didn't do live sports, but would record that. It's called ESPN now. And, uh, you know, what unfolded that day, this is where it's so much better to be lucky than good. What unfolded that day in Denver was just magical, right? For, you know, having all these players, having, you know, John Havlicek over there and, and Elgin Baylor over there and Rick Berry over there. And like in the lobby of the hotel was just completely different atmosphere. The writers and broadcasters were going crazy because they had so much, you know, material they'd never had before, um, you know, then we get to McNichols and, you know, the old timers game. One thing I didn't calculate very well was how different 60 year olds look playing basketball than they do playing baseball. Um, <laughs> kind, of, kind of requires a different athleticism, uh, shall you say, to, to, to do that. So while the, the introductions brought the house down when we introduced the players, like the the game itself, there were some cringe moments where you were kind of like, oh gosh, that's not the way for Tommy Heinsohn looking when he uh, when he played for the Celtics. Um, but then, you know, to our great fortune, Julius Irving, then at the end of his career, had agreed to come back and, and participate in the slam dunk contest. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, it got down to the finals between this rookie, Larry Nance, and uh, uh, kind of crazy when his son's now been in the league, but uh, Larry yeah. Nance and uh, Julius Irving and Julius had his little kids on the court coaching on the every dunk and ESPN captured all this content and the last dunk you know as only Julius could he did exactly replicated that famous dunk from the ABA slam dunk contest picked up the ball one, one end of the court walked the full length of the court came flying down I think the replay showed he was probably a little inside the free throw line but dunked the ball but Larry Nance won the contest. So there was kind of a passing the torch from the older generation to the younger generation there. Uh, the media went nuts. We got pages of coverage in Sports Illustrated that had never, ever covered the All-Star game before. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, 
And Stern arrives on the job Monday morning as kind of this marketing genius that <laughs> is going to do things differently than the old stodgy NBA has historically done them. So it was it was really important for him. Uh, it, it, it obviously set us on a course at the NBA. Um, the timing of it, just when that commissioner transition was happening, could not have been luckier. Um, and it just felt like, you know, we, got, we were on a rocket ship and we could ride from that point on. Um, I only have one more question for you, and I really appreciate all the time that you spent. But um, you mentioned streaming and sports gambling and, and things like that in relation to the Warriors and what they're going to be doing next. But when you go bigger picture in the NBA, is it kind of those same things with the next 10 years, like the biggest development? If you're, if you're trying to guess what the biggest development is 10 years from now with the NBA, is it one of those things? And what are you kind of looking at? I think, I think it's both of those things, you know, yeah. and, and, and we are very fortunate at the league level to have, we still have a lot of years left in our, in our national television agreements that fund, yeah. fund television at a higher and higher uh, level of compensation for the teams. But, you know, those companies that we're in business with now, as well as a lot of others are jockeying pretty mightily to figure out how they're going to get to your smartphone and your television set or your laptop or your tablet to to distribute NBA content going forward. And the great thing for being on the Warrior side or the NBA side is that we are the content creators. Um, mm -hmm. And there's going to be, I think, a, a greater demand than ever for people who can create live programming that is must-see, right? It'll, it, we already aggregate the largest audiences, live audiences that exist today. That will continue to have huge value, probably greater value, especially as you're trying to maintain your position in the industry or whether you're trying to launch a new position in the industry. So we're on the right side of the equation because people are gonna live and die on, on how consumers end up consuming sports contents and, and there'll be a lot of winners and a lot of losers in that. But the winner will be the people who can produce the content, which is why one of the reasons I'm so bullish about it. So what that looks like and who those partners are going to be is going to evolve over the next, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, I think, in a way that, you know, we have to be able to deliver it the way the consumer wants it. So we're going to be we're going to be doing a lot of work on that. I think inevitably sports betting becomes a huge part of American sports as it is in other parts of the world, right? It, yeah. it, for all the right reasons, um, you know, every every survey you see shows how much more engaged somebody who's wagered on something in the uh, uh, in a game is in the out and in, in, in watching that game and being part of what happens. Uh, you know, and I think Adam, from the day he became commissioner, staked out what was then a little bit controversial ground, I think, that sports yeah. betting uh, would actually be good for the league, not only because of popularity, but because the more uh, transparency and visibility there is into gambling, the less chance there is to, to manipulate any outcome of any kind. So the, 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 bigger, the bigger the involvement, the more transparency, the harder it would be for anybody to be disruptive uh, competitively in, the, in that system. Yeah. So um, how that plays out, the United States has decided that's a state-by-state -state decision as opposed to some sort of federal decision. So right now it's a complete hodgepodge of 
how different states, you know, the important things eventually, I believe everyone, you'll be able to have mobile wagering. You know, that's not something you can do in California today. Right. Um, and, and, you know, how that, how that evolves uh, is going to be sporadically different, but it, it'll evolve, I think, into a more general national system as time goes on and, and different states deal with it in the way that they're going to do. We'll get, we'll get closer to something that's more uniform, I think, and, and just, a, uh, I think, a tremendous opportunity for audience engagement uh, in the future for, for the NBA, for all the leagues, not just for the NBA. Um, Mr. Rick Welts, very much appreciate the time. Congratulations and again on this next step for you. And um, and again, thanks so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, I, I won't be a stranger. You'll see me around. That'll do it for us today. A special thank you again to Rick Welts for joining the show. Remember to subscribe to new episodes of Locked on Warriors wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate, review, and say nice things about the show. You can send your comments and questions to me on Twitter at WC Goldberg or email them to me at wgoldberg at bayarianewsgroup.com. Thanks for listening.